Hello, I'm Chris. And I'm Sean. And this is Monsters and Mythos, a podcast where we take a look at the races and monsters of Dungeons and Dragons and compare them to their real life folkloric and mythological counterparts. Today we are going to be talking about the Basilisk and the Cockatrice. Now I know somebody may be confused as to why we would combine these two creatures. And if you've only played Dungeons and Dragons and I'm sure some other TTRPGs, they are vastly different creatures. However, it's not on that end, it's on my end, the folklore, where you cannot get away from uh, combining them together in one episode. It would be impossible. Uh, Before we start, Sean, how much do did or do you know of the basilisk or the cockatrice prior to doing uh, any research? Um, mostly from various uh, role-playing video games. Like, you know, I think you run into a cockatrice and a basilisk in like some Final Fantasy uh, levels, uh, a few other various titles, you know. Oh, of course. I think in Harry Potter once too, but, but the Harry Potter version is much different than, than Aside from the D and D version, yeah. oh, it is. But when as we get into it, you'll find out that Harry Potter was more correct than D and D. Oh, I imagine there's widely different. Uh, there's a there's a big gap there for sure. Well, with that, why don't you uh, give us the Dungeons and Dragons variations on these two creatures? Okay, so yeah, once again, a couple of uh, beasties, more common than not in the D&D universes, but uh, very different creatures in their own right, worth touching on. So uh, let's start with the basilisk. What is a basilisk? Well, uh, in the many realms of D&D, the basilisk is often described as a thick-bodied reptile with eight legs covered head to tail in thick spines or spikes coming in a variety of colors uh, reds and blues but mostly earth and stone colored as they are found in many places but most often uh, are subterranean creatures Uh, a tooth-filled maw and glowing eyes these lizard-like monsters can get up to six feet in length uh, six an additional six feet of uh, worth of a tail and you know come in at a whopping you know 300 pounds or so so as if that's not enough this creature's main claim to fame is its ability to uh, petrify living creatures with a mere gaze a good quote uh from dungeons and dragons is uh no one carves statues of frightened warriors if you see one keep your eyes closed and your ears open yeah um Uh, One of the more interesting descriptors for this beastie is that it's an omnivore, uh, but any petrified flesh it consumes returns to flesh in its gullet, making it a popular uh, domesticatable beast for both protection and alchemical research reasons. Uh, This beast, uh, when not found deep underground nor bred domestically, can be found in a wide variety of climates, typically a layer or a, layer, a layering beast wherever it goes, uh, uh, casting its petrifying gaze across anything it deems prey. 
any any of that come close to what your uh, IRL uh, basilisk lore? Well, they have the same name, and I think most other things are pure coincidence. All right. Well, moving moving forward here. Okay, now uh, we're going to talk about the cockatrice. An ironic baddie in many RPGs, you know, so what is a cockatrice? Well, in the many realms of Dungeons & Dragons, this creature is often described as an avian monstrosity, roughly about the size of a large goose or turkey, <laughs> uh, having the head and body of a rooster combined with bat-like wings and a long, scaly lizard tail. Uh, known to be particularly aggressive, uh, often flying straight into the face of most aggressors, clawing and pecking, a particularly dangerous creature in a flock. You know, but uh, this this creature's particular uh, came, claim to fame, much like the basilisk, is petrification. However, it is meeting the bite of the cockatrice rather than the gaze of the basilisk that turns one into stone. And so, though in the more modern editions, the cockatrice's bite, uh, should one succumb to it, only petrifies one for, you know, 24 hours or so. A little less permanent than the gaze of the basilisk or, like, a medusa. And so, uh, as far as, uh, that rolls, how, how is that compared to your, uh, IRL cockatrice lore? The physical descriptions are definitely a lot more similar than they were with the basilisk. All right. Well, I mean, in short, these are two standard kind of lower level encounter type baddies with completely different looks that have a, a few uh, things in common. Uh, petrification ability for one, you know, uh, both often described as omnivores. So that's another thing. And then... Um, one thing that kind of stuck out uh, was their categorization. You know, they're both considered to be unaligned monstrosities, i.e., they're not necessarily evil. You know, they're 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 more they are aggressive, but they're not evil. Possibly territorial, or you know, working on their survival instincts or something. But uh, yeah, for the most part, uh, uh, that's all D and D has on these two beasties through the editions. So, uh, what did you dig up for? Yeah, I figured the basilisk and the cockatrice would kind of be one of those uh, monsters that just once you crafted them, there's not a lot you could go with them. They're not, uh, I guess, sentient enough, such as humans, goblins, to really create a whole mythos around instead they're like a bear you know once you have a bear you have a bear unless you somehow anthropomorphize it so that it all of a sudden has a personality like a human uh, until then it's just there so it's an encounter you can have uh, but they are necessary to still discuss especially as we were discussing uh, petrification monsters with the gorgons and the Medusas, and in D&D, these are also uh, creatures that can uh, petrify. However, that is not how they are in folklore. Um, but to begin, uh, we need to start with the basilisk. 
the original Basilisk is described as being completely different from the Dungeons and Dragons version. The Basilisk was described in Natural History by Pliny the Elder, which was released before his death in 79 CE, as being 12 fingers big. Now, the size of fingers uh, can represent different lengths depending on if they meant the width of the finger, such as when you're discussing having two fingers of uh, brandy, or whether just they're talking about the length of the finger. But generally considered about a foot long, maybe four feet big. Uh, the Basilisk was called King of the Snakes, and due to this, many more modern takes has a Basilisk being huge, such as with Harry Potter and the Chamber of, Sing uh, in the Chamber of Secrets, where it's this massive, can swallow a human in one single bite type beast. It was probably only that one to four feet long. Uh, the head of a basilisk has a marking that reminds people of a mitre or a crown-shaped crest. While it, and again, that's why it became king of the snakes. Uh, its hiss can cause other snakes to flee. While it is more common occurrence for the basilisk to petrify a person that looks upon it, it was more deadly in folklore. By simply looking at the basilisk, a person would drop dead from poison. The breath of the basilisk was so deadly and venomous that plants around a basilisk layer would wither and die. So it was a sign as to where the den of a basilisk is, if you came across dead plants. There's even a tale of a knight who one time saw a basilisk, stabbed it with his lance, and the blood of the basilisk climbed up the lance to kill not only the knight, but also the horse upon which he rode. So, something this deadly, could it be killed? Yes. There is actually an enemy of the basilisk, and you might be thinking, oh, something that deadly, it's gotta be some other mythical beast, something aggressive, something noble. It was the weasel. A weasel would go into the lair of a basilisk, usually a cave, a hole, or a basement, and kill the basilisk, even though the weasel would die in the process. I bet you weren't expecting that as a uh, natural enemy to such a deadly creature. Uh, no, that's pretty harsh. Uh, also, that's some potent-ass toxic blood if it killed, like, you know, it's like a fantasy version of anrac anthrax or something. Yes. Uh, there's some tales where a basilisk would kill itself if it ever saw its reflection. And this may come from an old debate as to how the eyes would see. And again, you're talking about early, you know, 100 BCE to the first century CE. And the debate was, was an image projected on to the eyes, um, such as you saw something and now that image was then implanted and could actually be seen upon your eyeballs. In fact, this theory led to a belief in studies that you could somehow photograph a dead person's eyes and you would be able to see the last thing that person saw. 
this was actually used uh, when they were trying to catch a Jack the Ripper. They hoped that with this new technology, you would be able to take a picture of the victim's eyes and see who the killer was. Unsurprisingly, that did not work. The alternative idea was that the eyes could project outward, and it was in this that the eye could emit venom or even curses, and that's where you got the evil eye from, because it was able to send out that um, negative image and curse somebody. And then lastly, some tales have it that a basilisk may be killed by the crowing of a rooster. And I'm trying to remember off the top of my head which episode we did before, but the rooster apparently was a very deadly creature to many mythological and folkloric creatures. Uh, in alchemy, the scales of a basilisk could be used to either change lead to gold, or at least make it possible to appear as though lead was changed to gold. So, when alchemy became big, finding a basilisk or creating one definitely enticed people. I mean, free gold, basically. Uh, and this was the image of the basilisk until the 14th century. At this point, it became merged with the cockatrice and everything about it changed. And this is also why the stories become more muddled. Instead of having two separate monsters, people began to use basilisk and cockatrice interchangeably. And so the physical description and abilities changed as well. So if you were to Google basilisk, you will find on some sites it says basilisk, also known as the cockatrice. Or you Google cockatrice and it'll say cockatrice, also known as a basilisk. And this is why we had to put them in the same episode, because of this uh, emergence that happened. So now let's describe what a cockatrice is. A cockatrice is a chimera-type creature with the body of a lizard or a wyvern. A wyvern being the dragon that has the strong back legs, bat wings, uh, where there would normally be forearms. And so the body was more reptilian and the head of a rooster. That's where we're getting the similarity to the cockatrice as in D&D and other RPG systems. With the cockatrice, it still had the deadly gaze of the eyes, but in some tales it could also breathe fire and due to the wings fly. So it's no longer a living on the ground kind of hiding and you might stumble across and now it's something that'll fly to your house and kill you where you stand and then burn it down around you. Um, one interesting thing is that basilisk and cockatrices do not produce offspring in any normal manner and are, and I say this with complete mockery, vastly different from each other. According to various alchemy books, to produce a basilisk, you take the egg of a toad, frog, or a snake, depending on which text you're reading, and have it incubated by a rooster or uh, cockatrill, which meant young rooster, and, just, and is where we get the word cock when we refer to them. So whenever you hear somebody talk about a rooster and they say cock, it's abbreviation for cockatrill. So you take this egg, 
and you have a rooster incubated. Sometimes it had to be nested in dung as a fertilizer, since a woman's womb was likened to a garden. Now, in a completely different manner, a cockatrice was produced by taking a cockerel egg and having it incubated by a toad, frog, or snake. You see how they're just totally unrelated to each other, right? Uh, yeah, a little bit of like old school alchemy there, you know, like uh, kind of like the formula that said something like uh, if you slaughter a bull in a shed and you keep the shed lock, it'll turn a, a, the dead bull into wasps or something like that. You know, that's what that reminds me of. Oh, and, and that's what a lot of alchemy books were in. Either A, it's because it was so entrenched in code, so no normal person could figure it out, that, you know, oh, you just don't understand it. Or B, they made it so ridiculous and so impossible that when it failed, they could just say, oh, no, it didn't fail. You failed. It's on you. You didn't do it right. Uh... Now, also depending upon the sources, the eggs had to be gathered at a certain time, such as midnight, on a full moon, and the egg had to come from a cockerel of a certain age, and the incubation lasts nine years. So again, we're seeing that impossible standards being created to create a creature, but there's that promise of gold at the end. So, is the basilisk real? Surprisingly, yes and no. While the basilisk, as originally described and as deadly as described, does not exist, it is theorized that the basilisk is actually the cobra. Cobras have the hood on the head that some might describe as being like a crown. It has a very venomous bite, and some have the ability to spit venom. So if you didn't see it spit, you might assume it came from the eyes. Uh, and as shown in the story of Ricky Tikki Tavi, mongooses, which are like weasels, would kill and eat a cobra. Though I'm sure if we were to make more modern tales, the honey badger would be added as an enemy of the basilica as well. Those things are fierce. And with the change to the cockatrice, the chances of having the creature being it real at all is greatly diminished to the point of saying no way in hell. There is no part rooster, part reptile with bat wings that can breathe fire flying around. Uh, an interest of note that some may have already picked up on already is the description of using a cockatrice egg to raise a cockatrice. And they might be saying to themselves, but a cockerel is a rooster, rooster is a male, and roosters cannot lay eggs. Therefore, impossible. And while this is really true, it's not believed throughout medieval history. You see, when hens first reach an age where it can lay eggs, the very first eggs are super small and look very different from the eggs it will later lay, and those look more like the eggs you buy in the grocery store. These first eggs would be called cock eggs, witch's eggs, fairy eggs, and are now known as pullet eggs, so you can even look them up. 
um, they do get used a lot of times in uh, because they don't have a yolk in them. They get used for egg white, liquid egg whites, um, so that they are being used and not just thrown away. So that's one way you could get a cock eggs is if they were pullet eggs. Um, finding these eggs were considered bad luck and could spell trouble. So they would be thrown over the roof of a house so that it was guaranteed to smash to the ground on the other side and prevent whatever, either, whatever evil would come from the egg from being produced. Uh, a second thing that can happen is if there's no rooster around, hens can begin to develop rooster-like behaviors and even physical characteristics. They are still hens, so they are egg-laying. However, they will look like a rooster. So then you see something that, and even crow like a rooster. So now you have something that looks male laying an egg. And that could be what they're talking about as well. There's also the really good chance that, again, it was an alchemy book and they were just talking out of their ass so that they could blame you for your failures. Um, there's also a lizard alive today that has received the name the common basilisk. These lizards have a crown shape on their head and webbed feet. Uh, due to these webbed feet, if they get scared, they will literally run across the surface of water to escape a predator. This has led to them being nicknamed the Jesus Lizard. Much like iguanas and various other reptiles, such as the python boa, these creatures are an invasive species that can be now found in Florida. Although, these would probably be really cool to see, they are still an invasive species. One speculation about the source of tails, besides the cobra, is that people were being killed by gas leaks that would be more prevalent and deadlier in a cavern or basement where it could build up. Then as someone goes in, they would not smell the gas, but would succumb to it and die. Uh, and so that could be the reason why, oh, they must have saw a basilisk as we found this dead body where we see nothing dangerous. Uh, later stories did have people possibly being petrified and turned to stone from looking at the basilisk but i'm curious as to whether these tales came before or after uh the they were used that way in rpg stories or other more modern fantasy stories uh the basilisk has been found in many different tales in the old testament there's a word in verses such as isaiah 14 29 where the hebrew word sepha and it has been translated to mean either viper, dragon, or cockatrice, uh, so, or even basilisk, depending on who is doing the translation. Now, the basilisk has been mentioned in Chaucer's The Parson's Tale, as part of his Canterbury Tales, as a way to describe how the looks passed between foolish men and foolish women are like, of, have the same results as the dead bodies around a basilisk. So the looks between men and women that are the naughty kind are as deadly as a basilisk's venomous look. 
there's even a tale in Warsaw, Poland about a basilisk that lived in a basement of a ruined castle that killed people. A young girl traveled down to the basement and never came back up. When she failed to return, her caretaker went down after her to see what was going on and failed to return. This led the townspeople to offer the deal to a convicted, though some say wrongly, murderer. They told him, if you go down and slay the basilisk, we will pardon you. And since you already had a death sentence, hanging or basilisk, it probably didn't matter to him. Take the gamble. So he dressed in a suit made of mirrors. And when he went down to the basement, the basilisk saw its reflection in the mirrors and died. And now there's even a street corner where you'll have a tavern of the basilisk, although they use the design of the cockatrice for it. Uh, place names, town names, you know, all sorts of that fun stuff that comes along with a tale such as this. This tale seems to have been more about a gas leak than a snake as nobody else saw it, and so by killing the beast, for all we know, it could be because with opening the doors to go down, especially so many times, they may have just let in enough oxygen or let enough deadly gas escape to, to where it was safe. And most popularly is the Basilisk of Harry Potter, which whose look could turn people to stone and had a very venomous bite, as a fang of the basilisk was later used to destroy a horcrux uh, when they couldn't figure out another way to do it. So from a D&D perspective, there wasn't a whole lot of need to combine the basilisk and the cockatrice in the same episode, as I said before. They are two completely separate and different creatures. With the basilisk being a much more dangerous encounter than a cockatrice. In folklore, however, you cannot discuss one without the other as they eventually get merged and tales would use their names interchangeably. So that's what we have from the folklore side. So, what can you do with the folklore to create a different type of encounter in D&D? Well, Imagine instead of this huge eight-legged creature, it's small. And you have people just dying with nobody knowing why. Not being turned to stone that could later be changed, but just flat out dying. And you're now taking a CR3 creature and probably easily now a CR-14, where your players have to go around shielding their eyes, trying to use blindsight or tremor sense or some other way to find this culprit that, because it's only one to four feet tall, isn't going to be this giant creature for them to run up against terrorizing a town. But you definitely have to save it for higher level characters because at low levels, they're not going to have those non-visible ways of finding it. Uh, that's the only real big thing I see. The Cockatrice still plays kind of the same. You can maybe beef him up because he was bigger. But I think the Basilisk is definitely where you would find that change. Uh, yeah, you... Uh... 
you definitely taught me a little something something I, I knew that the basilisk and the cockatrice were tied together somehow in real world lore but i didn't i wasn't i wasn't sure if it was like uh, what story where but you kind of clarified some of that but uh, one of the things that I liked to do or that I particularly um, have seen DMs do with these type of creatures is that they'll take a, something that is a lower challenge rating say like the cockatrice and they will somehow tie it to the basilisk in such a way kind of like how you were saying with like the alchemy you know like uh uh, oh well, you might you, you need a cockatrice to hatch a you know a chicken egg to make a basilisk or something you know something along those lines and you know have that kind of uh, play out via maybe some you know dark wizards experiments or you know maybe it's the you know, boarding house gone wrong type of scenario or something you know but also kind of lead yep. into it like that like maybe the egg of one leads to another somehow you know. Oh, yeah, you'd definitely be able to take uh, variants like that, and I'm guessing those are demons, or DMs, although I'm sure many people consider DMs demons. I know we have once in a while at our table. But they are probably ones who have actually, who have learned uh, the folklore of the basilics and the cockatrice and were able to find ways to morph one into another. Because they are related to each other, so I could definitely see having fun with that. Just just a way to change it up instead of it being uh, what is the cockatrice? A CRF? I was gonna say it's not even one. I think it's like a half uh, somewhere in there, three quarter maybe. <laughs> so I mean, you know, it's not exactly the scariest encounter when you get to level five or level six, but if you're able to take it and run it with the basilisk and again a new style basilisk or just something else you could definitely add another layer and making it even deadlier you're going to create a much more difficult challenge i mean you get disadvantage on attacks on creatures you can't see and on this you definitely cannot look then with it being smaller, it'll have, you can give it a higher AC because you're swinging wildly at something maybe a foot big. So you're going to need that blind sight and tremor sense and any other power that can give you a benefit where none exists. Right, and you know, it just kind of depends that maybe... Uh... All one-shots are kind of different, and all campaigns are kind of run out differently. And, you know, if you're in, like, a campaign type of a setting, like, you only get so many sessions for, you know, some of the lower levels. And, you know, some some web people, you know, they go through, you know, maybe some goblins and some ogres, while others will go through, you know, maybe some cockatrices and some uh, basilisks, and, you know, others maybe some, you know, bullywogs and then ankegs, you know, you, you, everybody's path kind of uh, uh, takes off on its own, and I think that that combination of, uh, you know, uh, not only do they share something uh, in common, both in, uh, you know, the regular lore and, and the D&D lore, uh, you know, with the petrification of things, like, I think that's pretty cool that, uh, you know, you could tie that together for some kind of reason while they'd be, like, sharing a territory or something, you know? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, that's all I have on my end. 
Uh, same here. Um, anybody tuning in, uh, give us a five-star review wherever you can. Help us get to more ear holes. You know, whenever if you want to rate and review us, that would be great. And um, if you want to hear me and Chris doing more nerdy shit, uh, check out uh, Tater Brain Pod's YouTube channel or Instagram. Anything else, Chris? Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or any creatures you'd love to hear discussed sooner rather than later, you can email us at monstersandmythos, all spelled out, at gmail.com. Uh, and as a reminder to anybody who uses the Stitcher app to listen, uh, Stitcher is going away. Uh, you still be able to listen on Pandora, Spotify, Apple iPods. Or if there is a source you prefer uh, where you, our show can't be found, let us know, and I will do my best to get us on there as well.